The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born into a Jewish family in Watford, but has since earned a reputation as a globetrotter. She attended the independent North London Collegiate School in Edgware before her mother emigrated the family to Canada. There she learned to be independent at a young age, moving out of the family home age 14. She studied philosophy and English at the University of Toronto before embarking on a career in journalism, first as a presenter for CBC TV, later becoming the first female editor of the Toronto Sun, before coming to the UK where she enjoyed a career as a prolific columnist for The Telegraph and The Sunday Times. Her personal life has also proved a ripe subject in the press from time to time. She has been married four times, three times divorced, Her fourth marriage is to the former newspaper proprietor, Conrad Black. In the 90s and early noughties, the pair were dubbed in The Spectator as London's most glamorous power couple. And Lord and Lady Black earned a reputation for their extravagant lifestyle. She said her extravagance knows no bounds. And the high-profile social set that attended their parties, which included the likes of Michael Bloomberg, Donald Trump and Tina Brown. But... As she documents in her new memoir, Friends and Enemies, this had all changed by 2007 when Black was jailed in America on charges of fraud and obstruction. As she documents in the book, she quickly discovered who her friends were and who were definitely not. Reflecting on that period, she said, Losing status, money, reputation and security is a shock when it happens all within a few days. The feeling of falling down the elevator shaft is impossible to capture. And gradually you realise, falling, falling, that you still haven't reached bottom and you can't even see it. My guest today is Barbara Emil. Barbara, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. You're dialing in from Canada. Now, on this podcast, we like to begin by asking the interviewee, was their childhood a happy one? (laughs) However, in your case, I feel it's a slightly inappropriate question. So how would you describe it? Look, it was not, I mean, it wasn't a Dickensian childhood. It was not desperately unhappy because I'm one of those little brats who's being sufficiently selfish that I make a world around me. It was perhaps a slightly unorthodox childhood. After all, I was born so long ago. The war was on when I was born. The Blitz was going. And I describe it as um, peripatetic. I... uh, I lived in a world that was pretty much my own. Mummy didn't like me very much. My father was away fighting, and when he came back, he liked me, but then unfortunately committed suicide. I had a lovely stepfather who saw that letting me leave home at about 14 was probably the wisest thing to do since my mother, every time she looked at my face, locked the door and swallowed lots of aspirin. So by and large, I'd say... It was not a normal childhood, but I never found it very unhappy. As a kid, you're sort of inventive and and you make your way in the world. And I had a pretty good time as a child. And 
as you touched on, you moved to Canada at quite an early age, but I just wondered, your early years were spent, early, early, was spent in North London, Hertfordshire, when you went to stay with your grandparents during the Second World War. So what what are your early memories, I suppose, of growing up in Britain? I loved it. I mean, I, I know it, it's not even idealised because when I go back, I always go back to where I first remember, which is Chorleywood, which I know is the green belt and is probably getting more and more built up. But there were bluebells and there were fields and there were cows. There was lots of rain. And I'd grown up loving the rain because that's almost a necessity to survive in London. Later on, we lived in Hendon, which is hardly a glamorous address, but it was nice. I rode my bike and I enjoyed times. I loved North London Collegiate School, absolutely loved it. Anna Winter hated it because she had to uh, wear a uniform. I liked wearing a uniform. I gather she shortened hers to outrageous degrees, but it was a wonderful school. I mean, it was just the kind of school where you, you know, every week you wrote an essay and you stood up and played radio games like uh, one minute please and gave lectures so my memories of England as a child are almost universally happy and not because I'm seeing it through a rose-colored lens but because it was happy I liked the country I liked the people I can't say I liked the food but I liked the food parcels we were getting and um, now you moved to Canada when your mother emigrated with her new husband. How did you find adjusting there? Because you said previously, talking about your early years in Canada, that you were trying to hang on to your Jewish identity. What did you mean by that? Well, you see, you did, I didn't have much identity to hang on to. In the school playgrounds, I was laughed at because of the way I spoke, which they considered to be English. You can tell that I don't have a received English accent. I've, I've just always spoken like this. And my school uh, uniform, which I thought was rather posh, was was um, a subject of much derision. So I, I, I try to define myself in inside myself, not obviously not to other people, but inside myself by by my Jewish identity. My grandparents had emphasized it to me. I had come from extremely significant rabbinical ancestors on both sides of my families. And of course, all Jews say that. And I, I sometimes wonder where the Jewish members of our tribe are who actually pushed carts and sold things, because we're all supposed to come from great rabbinical families, but I did. And so what I did when I had no parents to particularly like me and I was living alone in rooms was I just kept reminding myself I was Jewish. But I lived in a part of town that didn't have any Jews because they all lived in a better part of town. And Canadians couldn't think, possibly think that I was Jewish because my name is Sephardic, Emil, and that wasn't recognized. They only knew about Levis, Steinbergs, you know, Goldman, that sort of thing. And the people at the synagogue told me to come back in Christian Brotherhood Week when I tried to join the synagogue. <laughs> so I had to internalize all this. And most people, most children, when, you know, up to about your middle 20s, they want to belong to something. They want to know who they are. And that's how I defined myself. And when you're looking, I suppose, at your early years, what strikes one when they're reading about them is the fact that you left home pretty early. You left home in your teens and started to become financially independent. Can, can you explain to readers what happened there? Well, financially independent is probably a bit of a stretch. I came home from school one day. I was, I think, about 14, and my things were packed into 
cardboard cartons on the front doorstep. And my stepfather, who was a jolly nice man from Ealing, had kindly arranged a room for me on the other side of town and paid the rent till the end of my school year. And after that, I was on my own. So I got lots of jobs. I mean, I don't think there's a job under the sun, with the possible exception of firefighter, that I haven't done. I worked in canning factories. I worked in restaurants. I collected pop bottles and, and got the refunds on them. Any job I did, I, I took. I worked after school when I was 15 and 16. When I got to university, which was a bit of a struggle, but my teachers found out my circumstances and kept trying to turn me over to children's aid, which I successfully avoided. And so they got me bursaries to the University of Toronto, which helped a bit. You know, it was about one third of the cost of residence fees and school books. And then I got jobs, anything I could. You know, I worked nights during the week. I worked on weekends and I became financially independent in that way. And of course, I was incredibly extravagant, even in those days. If I earned an extra $10, it would go on a hairdo, you know, not being put aside for a rainy day. I did save a lot of money because I never thought of things like going to dentists or doctors or prescriptions or medicines. When I finally did get to a dentist, he told me I had 17 cavities. But having been a product of the national health system in England, which I know everybody loathes, but it did give me incredibly strong teeth as a child because I had to have cod liver oil and orange juice under the war situation. And that appeared to help my teeth in some way. Now, what I wanted to move on to was you went on to study at the University of Toronto, as I mentioned in the introduction. How did that come about? Did you always know you wanted to study at university? Because when you're talking about all the various jobs you did, it can sound a bit hand to mouth, if that makes sense. Well, yes, it does. But you see, that's the one, that's a great benefit of coming from a Jewish family. Although I, I can't claim this is exclusive to Jews. I'm sure it happens in other families. But I was told from the time I was a little girl that we were a people of the book. My grandfather had gone to the University of London in 1900, and they had held their admission exams on Yom Kippur, which was designed to discourage people, but it didn't discourage him. My mother had gone to university. You know, Everybody had gone there. We were never the least bit wealthy, but but to be clever and to go to university was absolutely drilled into me. So it never occurred to me that I wouldn't go to university. The question that was uppermost in my mind was how the blazes was I going to be able to afford it? And uh, I just solved that by working. It's, it's, and sometimes when I think of what I'd like to do if I had lots and lots of money again, it would be to help deprive children, and this sounds terribly goody-goody, but it would be to help deprived children have this kind of stimulus when they're very young to take them to universities to show them that there's a better life of education because um, it made all the difference to me and I managed to get my sister who I was not living with but I managed to prevent her from not going to university by bringing her in to my residence my younger sister now, we've had lots of guests on this podcast who talk about their university days, many of whom attended Oxford or Cambridge, <laughs> and to hear about the various yes. tribes and, and you know, the debate society, the wars to be elected. How would you describe your university days? Was there much of a student movement? Were you involved in the political scene? My British cousins were all at Oxford, and I envied them like hell. 
they were all from communist families. And as you know, in communist families, they don't help out poor members of the family. They just assume that the society will change and you, you will somehow become rich too. My days, I wasn't, I never joined clubs. I'm not really a clubbable person. But I had a wonderful time. What did I do? I entered things like short story writing competitions, which I managed to win until one awful year when I discovered I had come second and that the winner was a freshman by the name of David Cronenberg, a name you might recognize because he became a very famous filmmaker who directed such films as the first film called Crash, which was considered absolutely obscene, and I think the British censors refused to show it for a while. But he was an enormously talented filmmaker, and I was furious that he beat me in the short story contest, but it turned out to be so much better a story than mine that I decided then and there in university that I would never try to be a fiction writer. I would become a non-fiction writer. I obviously had no talent for fiction whatsoever. Did I do anything else? At, you know, I'm just trying to think if I did anything else at university. Not really. I dated with manic ferocity. Um, I mean, that was just absolutely fabulous. I never had seen so many chaps in my life. And there were all these Jewish boys that I'd spent my life trying to meet and had been rejected by their parents till I got to university. And there they were, stacks of pre-dental students, pre-lawyers. It turned out that I found them all incredibly boring, but it was just great fun. Still got the dates in. Uh, so going back to the, when you decided you weren't going to be a fiction writer, had in your mind, I suppose, what point did you decide that you wanted to do writing as your career? Was that pre-university or was that at university? It was in about 1946 in England. My mother had been working with the Red Cross. The war was over. My father didn't come home because of the divorce. And I had to play games as a little child. And so what I did was I used to write and I would enter, there was a magazine for children called Collins Magazine, and I would enter it by writing and so that I would win book tokens and I could get books. And I, I did keep winning and I thought that was rather good. And then when I went to North London Collegiate School, I wrote essays a lot. When I got to Canada, I discovered that while I was rather odd to them and peculiar. I could win friends through writing. I would write their essays. I would write their poems for contests. It was very irritating because one of the poems I wrote for someone else beat the poem that I wrote for myself. And I couldn't really say that. And gradually I saw that I couldn't really cook. I couldn't really do anything much in life, except I, I had a small facility with words. And that's decided me that that's what I was going to do. Now you mentioned communism and I just want to touch on your political journey because I, I, it's been reported at least if, if my research is correct that you were a, a delegate in 1962 to the Soviet World Festival of Youth and Students. So were you drawn, I, I know that you kind of moved more to the right as you grew older but were you initially quite drawn to that movement? Mm. I wasn't drawn, I wasn't exactly drawn to communism, but I was certainly drawn as young people are, and as I think it was Bernard Shaw advised us we all would be, I was drawn to the left simply because I thought it was, it would do better things. I was in the young CCF group, which is Canada's version of the Labour Party, when I was at high school. And I went on this trip to the World Youth Festival because I was in England, my 
my uh, grandfather had died and he had left a modest amount of money. I think it was four or five hundred pounds to each of his grandchildren. And I used it and I got permission from the university bursar to go back to England. And when I was back in England, I didn't really have anywhere to stay. So I went to stay with one of my aunts. They were communists. They were Chinese communists. I mean, they weren't Chinese. They were in Hampstead, but they were Chinese communists. And they, my uncle had been one of the first people in Britain to open up trade with China and was head of the Sino, Anglo-Sino trade, something or another. And they got me a place on this delegation to the World Youth Festival, which was being held in Helsinki, but went by way of East Berlin, Warsaw, Leningrad, and then to Helsinki. And I went there, you sort of madly left wing, and came back not right wing, but and completely disillusioned because I saw the Berlin Wall up close. My translator that was traveling with us was in tears on the East Berlin train station because she couldn't go to the West no, I guess, I'm oh, sorry, she was in the West and she couldn't go back to the East to visit her family because she knew she'd never get out. And she was crying and crying. And I saw what was going on. And you didn't have to be particularly clever to see what was going on. Um, if you were at university and you were staying in hostels in East Berlin and being woken up every morning to go to your local factory and see the jolly good workers and sing anthems. So I came back pretty well disillusioned with with communism and somewhat suspicious of the Labour Party's ties with it. So I, I was hovering in the middle, trying to, to find some sort of way forward, but not being terribly politically interested in parties as such, but rather more in systems. I just became what I thought very grandly <laughs> was somebody who would fight for liberty in whatever country I thought it most it was most exemplified. And uh, frankly, I thought that Britain was the exemplar of all the things that I believed in, Dice's constitution, innocence um, before guilt. All the qualities that I'd been taught as a child were part of the English system, became the things I looked for. Now, I suppose touching on your career in journalism and, and the beginning of it. I, I mean, your first marriage to a member of the Toronto Jewish community came to, <laughs> is, is that perhaps not what to say it, but that that's how it's been described. Came to an end, and I think when you when you spoke about it in the past, one of the quotes you know your observation was that one of the issues was the idea that Jewish wives didn't work, so you weren't really supposed to have have a career while being in a marriage. And, and I wondered, did that help, did that experience motivate you to uh, have more of a journalism career or, or to kind of be more determined with it? It was just infuriating. I spent all these years determined to become part of the Jewish community and marry a nice Jewish boy. I got really a terrific one, really good looking, really nice. I thought he was terribly mysterious because he was quiet. It turned out he was just a quiet person. And I was at the time in graduate school and I failed graduate school because I failed Anglo-Saxon grammar, which I honestly, I warn people, do not take Anglo-Saxon grammar. It's really ghastly. You have to be absolutely dedicated. And the family did not approve of my suggestion that their son and I lived together for a few years. This was the early 60s. 
women didn't do that sort of thing. But I thought, because I had no, no family had brought me up, so I had my own ideas, you see. And I thought that living together before we got married might be a jolly good thing, and it would have saved one divorce if we'd done it. And the family didn't think working was a good idea because they saw it as a insult to the fact that they would be able to support us. And that struck me as, again, something I couldn't live with. I already had a job at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation who didn't actually have a call or a need for graduates of philosophy. There was nowhere they could fit in Hegel and Kant, but they got me a typist job. And our marriage just fell apart after seven months because I I didn't want I didn't want fur coats. I didn't want to go and choose China. I wanted to work and my husband didn't have the strength to stand up to his family. And after that, when it came to, you know, focusing on your journalism career, you went to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation where you started, I think, fair to say, presenting. Can you talk us a little bit through to listeners in terms of your career journey? Because you went from doing uh, probably more on camera to becoming a writer, columnist, and then the first female editor of the Toronto Sun. Well, I was a semi-success at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. After I worked my way to being on camera and interviewing people, it went all very well until I interviewed a folk singer called Phil Oakes. And Phil Oakes, O-C-H-S, was a folk singer. And he prided himself on radical songs. And I asked him how on earth he could make such a wonder of, of China where people were you know, being put in camps and things. And he got very cross with me on camera. And I said, look, if you're so happy about it, why don't you go and live there? Which is, of course, a childish thing to say. But my producer was not thrilled with this and said, you know, you're not there to be a politician. You're there to interview a folk singer. So I left the CBC and I decided that I would try writing. I'm I'm kind of short. I'm compressing this because the details are too boring. And I did my first long article, totally on spec, because nobody would hire me since I'd been a cover girl and a model as well. And cover girls and models were obviously by definition had nothing between their ears and so couldn't possibly be hired to write anything serious. And I wrote an investigative article and it was published and it received some acclaim from the newspapers and it started off some kind of government commission into the conditions that I had unearthed at the local Drug Addiction and Research Foundation. And after that, people started commissioning me. And then my, is it second husband? Yes, you know, it's hard, one loses count. My second husband and I, he was a marvellous man, became Conrad's best friend, wrote a book together. He was a Hungarian Jewish emigre, and there had been a murder in, in Toronto by a Hungarian. And we wrote a book about it called By Persons Unknown, Nonfiction, and it won the American Mystery Writers Edgar Award, which is a big deal in the world of mystery writing. And that launched us into all kinds of other things. And I got a column in Canada's news magazine, which I held for 30-something years. And then I was asked to become the editor of this scrappy little tabloid newspaper, which actually had a circulation, which in Canada was considered pretty good, of between 400 and 600,000 readers a day, the Toronto Sun. And I was the first woman editor 
in Canada. And according to my English secretary, who called up various publication associations, the first woman editor in North America. There, however, was not loud cheering from the feminist section when this happened, since it was sort of like Margaret Thatcher. Not that I'm anything like Margaret Thatcher, but you know, Margaret Thatcher was sui generis. She was not a woman. She clearly had no ovaries or anything like that. And the feminists never embraced her, and they never embraced me, even though in one sense, I think that my life was very much what a free woman's life should be. And how did your staff take to having first female boss in terms of being editor of that paper? Because you mentioned earlier, perhaps because of looks not being taken fully seriously. Did, did, you, did you find that people quickly took to you being in charge or did you have any difficulties? Oh, God, they loved me. <laughs> no, I mean, um, actually, the men did find it a bit tricky. And frankly, I didn't blame them because I thought that the managing editor, who was a man, would have been a much better choice as editor than me. But I was not going to be terribly you know, self-sacrificing and turn it down. So they no, they didn't particularly like me at all. And my work habits were awful because I'm someone who works by night. I still do. I work till about four in the morning uh, every night. And at that time, of course, you have to modify your habits because you cannot be a newspaper editor and not be in the office. But my secretary used to wear a T-shirt that said it's 11 a.m. and she's not in. And on the back of it, it would say it's 2.30 and she's left. So I would I would come in and I would edit as fast as I could. And I would go over the news and see what the leaders had to be. And I'd write the leader and spend as little time in the office as possible. I think that that I got some respect grudgingly. And I must say that there were a lot of jolly decent chaps in there and the sun newspaper chain spread across canada and there were newspapers in three or four different cities so it was a very good job to have and it gave me a lot of training now around that time or nearing the end you eventually decided to move back to the uk to england i think now correct me wrong your third husband david graham was based in england some say for tax reasons so was that the main reason you moved over or were you interested to kind of seek out media journalistic opportunities in the uk it was the main reason i had wanted to move back to england many many times but now i had a job that was really the the envy of just about any woman in Canada. And I thought of it as a stepping stone to edit a big newspaper in America or write. And David Graham, who I fell absolutely madly, insanely in love with, I mean, just like one of those rip your bodice novels. It was just an incredible thing. A bachelor of 47 who had never married, I should have known that there was a reason why he had never married. But he needed me to leave Canada because tax people would have killed him if he had married a woman who had an apartment and job in Canada. And so, you know, blithely, I gave it all up. I gave up my pension. I gave up my my job. I gave up everything because I was in love and came to London to live in a flat with a very posh address and bad and damp leakage. It was on Eaton Place. I remember it to this day. And David was never there. And I was alone most of the time. So I was faced with the quandary of once again reinventing myself. And I wanted to write, but I had such awe of British journalists. And I do to this day, in spite of the horrible things they've said about me, 
I had been reading The Spectator and The New Statesman since I was a kid. And I just thought the writing was marvellous, absolutely marvellous. And I didn't think I had a chance in the world of getting a job in England. But somehow, um, Charlie Wilson was editor of The Times, and he looked at me rather sceptically and turned me over to their features editor, who looked at me rather sceptically and said, well, try, which wasn't exactly a promising beginning. And then a Canadian prime minister came to town, and I suppose they didn't know another Canadian in London who knew anything about Canadian prime ministers. I mean, why should you? And they called me up and said, could you try writing something about him and we'll see about it. And it, they put it on the editorial page. And they asked me to do one more piece when Samora Michelle died, who was the dictator in Mozambique. And I had been in one of his prisons when I was a journalist. And I couldn't understand why everyone was crying over his death, since if you'd been in his prisons, you'd know there was nothing to cry about. And I mentioned this to the Times, and they said, well, you can try a piece. And that got on the leader page. And then they asked me to write about Esther Ranson. And Esther Ranson was starting out something called Child Helpline. And I was slightly skeptical of her definition of child abuse, which appeared to include not tucking your little girl up in bed at night. And knowing British social workers, I thought that that might make it rather difficult for mums who didn't tuck up their children in bed at night. And so I wrote my column. And after that, I had a column in The Times, a weekly column. I read that you said your Times column would often take you five days to write. Is that correct? It took me between four and five days because I, I really, I mean, you know, it, it, it does sound, I don't expect people to believe me, but I really do think British writing is superb. It's economical, it's terse. And I had many, many heroes, Matthew Paris, Bernard Levin. These were people I wanted to write like. And so I would write and write and I'd throw it out and write again and write. And yes, it took four or five days. And then I got this wonderful day of freedom and then the whole thing started again. Now, how did you find the London social scene initially? Because one of the things that you mentioned in your memoir and has been written a lot about is your friendship with the publisher and peer, George Widenfield. I suppose reflecting on that scene, I, I wondered if you could explain to listeners, I, I suppose, how, how that person influenced you know, your life, really. I'm astonished that you noticed that I was friends with George Weidenfeld. I thought this was a secret that I could keep just in a few pages. George Weidenfeld was an absolutely wonderful man, and I adored him. And uh, I had met him when Miriam Gross, who was arts editor of The Observer, uh, had had a dinner party, and just for six people, and she had invited me and David Graham over to it, and I got all ready for it, very excited to meet George Weinfeld. And as we got ready to leave, David said, oh, go by yourself. You'll attract him much better than I could, and then we'll be invited to his parties. This was a fatal thing to say. George was attracted, and we started going out, and David was never in town, and he said, oh, fine, let you know, go out with George. I don't think he would have approved of me going to Annabelle's after my evenings out with George, which we did. And I became, I suppose, how can I put it? I became very close with George, and he became um, the subject of my, he became 
the, the uh, cause of my divorce from David Graham, which was incredibly painful because I had not had the sort of physical relationship with George that ought to have been the cause of a divorce. But it had all the appearances of that and there were sexual aspects to it, she said delicately, because these things are not best talked about in podcasts. You can read about them in the book. And I don't say that to, to promote the book, but I just feel awkward talking about things. And George, George was very good at manipulating people. And he had a sort of Praetorian guard of women around him, most of whom I liked very, very much indeed. But they felt that I was very cruel to George and that I had treated him very badly. And so they abandoned me when I abandoned George and David abandoned me and filed for divorce immediately. So there I was stuck in London in what seemed to me to be a particularly endless rainy sequence and very depressed and trying to write my way through it. I suppose with that marriage coming to an end and clearly the the drama of, of that relationship. I like the description you have of getting a flat in Knightsbridge and, you know, just the views from it and having that slight little sense of satisfaction about things suddenly look a bit brighter. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's wonderful. There were two flats in my life that have absolutely always cheered me. I had one in London, when I in, in uh, Toronto, when I was editor of The Sun. It was only a one-bedroom, but it was bright and cheerful. And you open the door and I think, there may be many women who, who understand this, although probably now it's routine. In my time, it wasn't. I'd open the door and I'd know that everything in there I'd pay for. It was all the product of my own work. And I felt wonderful about that. Then I got Lennox Gardens, which was a flat under the eaves of a house in Lennox Gardens. It was a marvelous flat. One room downstairs, a bedroom upstairs, and a workroom sort of office at the back that looked out over all the housetops of London. And it was quite my most favorite place, incredibly expensive and nothing that I could keep up for very long. I was splitting the rent with the screenwriter, William Goldman, who won a couple of Oscars, one for Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid and one for Misery. And he lived three doors down. I had actually wanted to get a flat on the other side of London in, um, near Miriam Gross which would have been much cheaper, but he wanted me to live two doors down, so I agreed to take this flat and we split the rent. And it was wonderful. I, I, I loved it, perhaps, most of anywhere I've ever lived. And um, Now, I wanted you to talk us through meeting your fourth husband, your current husband, Conrad Black. Ah. Well... When I first knew Conrad, it was in, in Canada. And I thought he was the most, you know, he's one of those stuffed shirts who wore pinstripe suits and went to big lunches. And he was a member of the Canadian establishment. And I had absolutely no interest in businessmen and no interest in members of the Canadian establishment. And my publisher made me go out to lunch with him once, which I absolutely dreaded. And in fact, at lunch, I found that even though Conrad did drink, which wine, which I also dreaded because I can't handle any liquor of any sort, including wine, it makes me very sick. I found that he was actually rather amusing, but I, I left it at that. It, it never occurred to me that there'd be anything more to it. Then I came to England, and shortly, a couple of years after that, Conrad bought a interest in The Telegraph. And more intriguing to me, he bought my favorite magazine in the world, The Spectator. 
And I say this not because you are a podcast from it, but because I have always adored The Spectator. And it infuriates me that your good editor, to whom I have emailed a number of times, refuses or won't put me in touch with some of the columnists that I read, like Melissa Kite, with absolute pleasure every week. Melissa has incidentally got me through some very sticky times. And Conrad brought an interest in that. And he then became a figure around London. And people wanted to know, of course, as soon as he brought into the Telegraph, who was this man? So everyone was calling me up as the Canadian journalist to ask me about him. And I couldn't tell them very much, but I told them what I could. I kept bumping into Conrad at different parties with his wife, Joanna, who I rather liked. She was very pretty, young, much younger than me, and very down to earth. And she didn't use words so long that I couldn't understand them, which Conrad did. And then they broke up. And one day I was at the American Ambassadors. You got to places like that because by now I was the senior political correspondent for the Sunday Times. So I got invited to places. And Conrad was there and he told me he had broken up with his marriage, which I suspected was not his idea. And indeed it wasn't. It was his wife who had gone off with a, a priest. And I said to him, Conrad, you know, you're in your, you're in your forties still. Every hostess in London will devour you. For God's sake, be careful. They're, they're, they're vicious in this town. They'll tear you to pieces. They'll, you'll have women falling out of trees over you. And he said, I remember it to this day, don't restrain yourself, Barbara, don't restrain yourself. And I said, look, if you're ever lonely, which I doubt, but you know, you can always go to an afternoon film with me. I'm going out with Bill Goldman for some weekends, he's not here. So if, if, you're, if you're lonely, give me a call. And he did. And we started going out and Bill Goldman got very jealous. And I explained that there was absolutely nothing to it. And there was nothing to it. And then one day he came over to my flat uh, on Lennox Gardens, we were going, I'd scored a couple of tickets for Placido Domingo that night at the Royal Opera House, and I'd invited Conrad in thanks for the many uh, restaurants he'd taken me to on Sundays. And he came early, and he sat down, and he gave me this incredibly long speech full of allusions to great couples in poetry and literature, and I hadn't hellish clue what he was talking about. But I gathered he wanted to have some sort of affair with me. So I said, look, Conrad, I'm not in the market for an affair. And he said, don't, don't be a fool. I'm asking you to marry me. He had not as much kissed me. And I felt that a man who wants to marry you usually has laid a hand on you, as it were. And so I thought there might be something terribly wrong with him. And I said, go to a psychiatrist. Um, this is clearly a rebound thing. And he went to a psychiatrist, the head of the Tavistock Clinic, and came back to me very confident two days later and said, the psychiatrist has seen you on television and said, there is absolutely nothing wrong with me in wanting to marry you. And we started dating. And finally, I, uh, I thought, well, we better, we better find out what it's going to be like in bed because there's absolutely no point in marrying someone if it doesn't work there. I mean, this is all very well. We go to lots of nice places. And so I put my jeans on a hanger in the back of my Golf, my Volkswagen Golf, and I drove to his house in Highgate to spend the night there. And next day I was madly in love. And how did your life... Need I, need I, <laughs> need I say any more? 
We'll join the dots. Now, how did your life change when you married Comrade Black? Because you were clearly an admired journalist, a respected career, but all of a sudden, and we were speaking about The Spectator, this is a Spectator podcast, but, you know, I think it was, you were written up in The Spectator as, you know, the most prestigious power couple. So, so how, did, how does your life transform? Is it suddenly a much more kind of glitterati affair? It was horrible. I loved Conrad desperately, and I love being with him. He's one of the funniest, kindest. I mean, I, there, I can't, there aren't enough adjectives. But you know what it's like. When you're a journalist, you spend half your time tearing apart the proprietors because they are the devils in your life. And I was now married to the devil. And so my journalism friends didn't quite know how to adapt to this. And all of a sudden, I wasn't a columnist anymore, even though part of the deal when I married Conrad was that I could keep on working for Rupert Murdoch because I really didn't want to work for my husband. And I was suddenly giving dinner parties. I had given exactly two dinner parties in my life before I married Conrad, and I was 51. So you can see my experience in giving dinner parties was somewhat limited, and the number of guests had never been more than six. And they'd both been failures. I mean, it's hard to fail with a dinner party of six, but I had managed this task. And all of a sudden, I was expected to entertain because Conrad loved entertaining. He loves people. It's it's not a question of wanting to meet important people. He loves history, historians and politicians. And he loves pretty girls who wear short skirts and have long hair. And he loves I mean, everything. And... All of a sudden, the good side of it was that you could get any restaurant table you wanted. The good side of it was that all of a sudden I could buy the things I wanted to buy. And I'd always been incredibly extravagant within my means and figured I'd write another article to pay the bill or pay my credit card bill. So one suddenly became someone. And that was a very, very new feeling for me. And I enjoyed that part of it very much. But the price tag was the entertaining. And that, that I mean, I'm wringing my hands as I talk to you now because I'm just thinking about what it was like trying to figure out how to seat people and how to work with the staff who I knew were giggling at my inexperience and saying horrible things. And you have to hire staff. And I never knew that when they had on their resume that they worked for the Queen, that this meant they couldn't do anything because the Queen has so many staff, each person does one job. And, you know, I needed staff that could do 12 jobs. So I ran the house as best I could. Conrad was mercifully in love and wonderfully blind. To this day, he thinks I'm good looking. And to this day, he thinks I gave wonderful parties. And in the book, I, I try to apologize to all the people who had to sit through my dinners. Because as I got more and more scared that the dinner was going to be a failure, I would invite more and more and more and more people thinking this would make it right. And it would end up that nobody could move their elbows at the dinner table. I mean, they, they were just so crammed in that it was it was a nightmare. But that was life. And I met people, you know, I, I had Princess Di in the house. I had Gianni Agnelli. I, I would go to events in billionaires' houses. We acquired homes in different cities, all of which needed looking after. And I think I mentioned to you, in the, or certainly in the book, my conversation with Ghislaine Maxwell um, in Palm Beach, who said to me one day, walking on the beach, 
okay, let's see who looks after the most bathrooms. How many bathrooms do you look after, Barbara? Which I thought was a very peculiar game to play. But then in Palm Beach, everything is very peculiar. I only had 39 bathrooms to look after. And she said I could count the plane and the choppers. We didn't actually have a chopper, but obviously she was counting Jeffrey's choppers. So she won. I did not dare ask her how many bathrooms she looked after. I thought 39 was a pretty impressive figure. And it occurred to me then, Katie, that that my life could not really have been particularly useful if I was spending time worrying about 39 sets of hand towels for bathrooms alone. I mean, this was not the life I had envisioned for myself. No, and that life changed, which is what I want to get on to as we're nearing nearing the end of this podcast. Um, Though I could keep talking here for hours, but I think you probably have things you have to do. (laughs) We mentioned the introduction, but Obviously, your husband and his alleged behaviour at Hollinger, the holding company for the newspapers, starts to be investigated. Uh, You know, charges follow. You have 17 years of legal battles and there's a pardon that comes after that. But I I wondered if you could just talk us through what it's like when all of a sudden you have a situation where you go from having lots of these people, you know, these glamorous circles, we can list all the guests, um, wanting to be your friends. And what you document in the book so vividly is is suddenly almost getting the cold shoulder from all sides. So how do you deal with something like that? There is no formula for dealing with it. There's nothing in your experience that um, helps you deal with it. All you can do is put your head down and bash on. If you're a a journalist like I was, and I was a journalist who always over-researched, everyone told me that at every paper I worked, I had to first research Conrad's situation because if he had been guilty, then I had to face that, and that would require one sort of action. I would have stayed with him no matter what. But I researched and researched it, and it was evident to me that he was innocent. So that, that made actually the situation even worse, frankly, because uh, it's, it's, it would have, if he'd been guilty, at least I would have had something to hang on, the reason for why this was happening to us. And then what you do is you just try and help your husband. And what you need at that point is loads and loads of cash. And all those rich friends, all those billionaires who at the beginning said, oh, Conrad, just, just pick up the phone, call on us, we'll help you. Because you see, the government freezes all your money. That's the way U.S. system of justice works. It's nothing like British justice. What they do is they freeze every cent you have so you can't get a, a good lawyer. But all those friends melted in a way, and nobody would help us. So I just kept quietly selling everything I had, all the, the jewelry he had given me. And I didn't want to tell Conrad because I knew it would upset him terribly. And you, you, you learn a new set of survival skills. And actually, Katie, for this, I think it's the one thing. I may not have been qualified to give dinner parties, but for this, I was qualified because uh, I have a, the, you know, I keep referring to this Jewish thing and, and your listeners will get absolutely bloody bored with it. But if you have a Jewish pessimism about you, you assume that the worst is going to happen and you assume that good times can't last. And I always did assume that. And so when people started turning away from me and suddenly I was toxic and Conrad was in these terrible difficulties, it just seemed to me to be the predictable, natural course of events. And one had to deal with it, which is not to say that I didn't get terribly depressed and terribly upset, but it was not a depression that incapacitated me. 
the way breaking up with someone you love incapacitates you. It was just something that was there and you fought on. And as long as Conrad was alive, and that was my biggest fear the whole time when he went to prison, that he would have a stroke and I would not be able to help him because you, you can't really get medical help in U.S. federal prisons. It's very, very hard. And he developed high blood pressure. The inmates were terrifically nice to him. And I grew to really, really enjoy the only company that that was absolutely solid with me, which were the Afro-American wives, grandmothers, and, and uh, grandparents who came to the prison and sat in the visiting room with me waiting to see their sons. And one just does get through it. In fact, I have to tell, I'll make a confession. All of this ended just at the end of last year. The last suits were settled. And I woke up one day thinking, I, I don't know what to fight anymore. I've been fighting so long, I feel almost lost. Yes, I'm writing a book, and yes, that's been a struggle. But I'm lost without waking up with this gripping fear of having to fight. And it's been a real adjustment. I mean, it's obviously adjustment for the better, but it is a curious state of mind. It's, I, I mean, you mentioned in the book some of the people who surprised you with their friendship and some who perhaps withdrew their friendship. You mentioned Ghislaine Maxwell, that I've given you the cold shoulder. I presume she's getting a few cold shoulders right now herself. But Elton John, someone who supported you and, and uh, has described your book as an extraordinary read. I, I wondered, at the end of the book, you mentioned your, you know, your friends and your enemies. And I think from some of the prose, for example, you, you say... Uh, I've worked out 1,001 ways to see them die of the enemies, beginning with injecting them with the Ebola virus and watching. <laughs> Yet you list more friends and enemies, as far as I can tell. So, so, so is that because you, you think you have more friends than enemies or you don't want to name all the enemies? Well, it's for two reasons. First, it's because I didn't show the book to Conrad when I'd written it. And so he didn't see it till final pages. And when he saw I'd made lists of friends and enemies, he got incredibly excited and he wanted to add enemy upon enemy upon enemy. I wouldn't let him. This was the only thing we disagreed upon on my book. I mean, he probably disagreed upon a lot of other things, but but I wasn't going to let him muck around with my lists. And I think it has more friends and enemies for the following reason. I couldn't list all the journalists, you know, the ones at The Guardian and The Independent, that said absolutely ghastly things about me because that's their job. And I can't really consider them enemies for simply doing their job. And I listed friends because I thought it was so astonishing that anyone would talk to me and that they would be there. So that's why, and probably because my memory is absolutely flawed now. I've taken so many drugs, by which I do not mean the happy drugs like cocaine and heroin. I mean prescription drugs to keep me going, to keep me awake so that I can work 18 hours a day or something, that they've impaired my memory. And also, I suppose, because at some point I realized that listing people by name was probably vulgar and childish, but I had to do it anyway. More people were against us than for us, but I didn't hold that against them either because people have their own lives to lead and our battle should not be the center of their life. And once you're in the situation we are and as toxic as we were, you can't possibly expect people to incorporate you into their lives. So that, I suppose, is why you see a smaller list of enemies than friends. 
there were lots and lots and lots and lots more people who really disliked me. But then when you think about it, Katie, a lot of people disliked me intensely before I married Conrad. So, <laughs> you know, what can they say? I'm just not a lovable person. <laughs> <laughs> lovable to some. Now, a few final quick questions. First one I want to ask was, how much kickback have you got from people you mentioned in the book? Have many people got in touch to suggest that they're, you know, unhappy or distance themselves? Or has it been more positive? Nobody who I slagged off, as it were, in the book has contacted me. Not one. And my my publishers were desperate because they thought there were going to be all kinds of suits. And I said to them, I've never been sued in my life. I always research. Everything I say here bad about people is true. And the book went through lawyers in three countries. I have had wonderful emails and contacts from people who aren't even mentioned in the book, who remember me from when. Some of them, I think, remember me doing acts of kindness that I didn't do, but it's wonderful to hear from them. And I'm really thrilled. So that has been a very, very good part of it. And I find that doing things like this podcast, and I've done a lot of Zoom things, are difficult because I have to, you know, you, you've been jolly nice, but people ask lots of such questions about difficult times in my life. And I have to really think about them to answer them because I don't want to give stock answers. And I try and be very jolly. And then when the podcast ends, I go into a corner and I cry, <laughs> which is pretty silly but it's it's been hard I, I can imagine to a degree but ho- hopefully this podcast not not so much no this is not one of them I assure you you list Boris Johnson as a friend at the back of the book former editor mm-hmm. of the spectator current prime minister I, I just wondered how do you think he is faring as as a prime minister he's getting quite mixed reviews over here well I loved I mean I'm one of those people who absolutely adore Boris always did and told him I told him he had to be more serious if he ever wanted a political career. This is one of my many mistakes in life. I told Leonard Cohen before he recorded, Leonard had rescued me from a marriage, that he would never be any good if he tried to sing his poetry. I make these mistakes on sort of a major scale. I don't know how Boris is doing because I don't follow British politics. I rely on my friend Miriam Gross, who's now Lady Owen, and people like Clarissa Price-Jones, these are people you wouldn't know, but they're jolly accomplished people, Miriam particularly. And they tell me that Boris is making a bit of a balls up of things and that he hasn't done very well under COVID. And I'm sorry about that because, you know, he's an incredibly, underneath all that, you know, brushing back the blonde hair and boy with bare-faced cheek, he's an incredibly clever man. And I hope if he is making a balls up of it, not to make a pun on your name, Katie, that he he uh, gets himself straight because he could be a fine prime minister. I'm told he doesn't have good leadership qualities. That I, I can't speak to. He was a great editor of The Spectator. He was a great columnist. Um, just on Leonard Cohen briefly, did you ever uh, tell him your advice was wrong in terms of the fact that he did end up being quite successful with his singing? <laughs> Yes, I did joke with him because uh, I was assigned later on to write an article about him. And, you know, Leonard, he just smiles and looks at you. Uh, He had written a very nice poem about me when uh, I was going out with his cousin. And I never realized that, that 
it wasn't published and people would be interested in it. And when I was writing this book, I reproduced it because I had a copy of it. And then I lost the copy and the publishers went completely balmy over it. And I had to spend three months going through boxes looking for it. But he was a sweet, he was a, he was a, a lovely man, very sweet. And he rescued me from the one time I took LSD. Not, I might say, deliberately. I, it was pushed on me and it hadn't been for Leonard marching me around Times Square and pouring coffee in me. I might today be a mad person shut up in an asylum somewhere. Um, now, I could ask you questions for another two hours, but I feel that given we're over an hour and the podcast is supposed to be 40 minutes, I, I should probably I'm start. Sorry. Oh, no, no, it's my, it's my bad. I, I should probably come to an end. So just two final things for me. The first is in the opening to your book, you're slightly, I suppose, not disparaging, but you were a bit down on yourself in terms of your writing career. You suggest it perhaps hasn't been as uh, you know, as you quite imagined it. And I just wondered, when you look back on your career, are you happy or are you content with where you've got to? No, I think I wasted an awful lot of time in trivial things. I think the shallowness of my character tripped me up. I think that I didn't have enough talent to do what I would like to do. And, and that is a fact of life. And there's nothing now that I can do to change it except keep on working and hope that somehow the gods will strike and I'll write something I'm proud of. And then the final question I wanted to ask you is one that we ask everyone on the podcast, which is just, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? Now, some on the podcast have misconstrued the question and thought it was, what's the worst advice you've given someone? But that could be your Leonard Cohen advice. So so, so I'll leave it to be your own. No, no. (laughs) You know, I was thinking about that when you, you, you mentioned it. I think the worst advice I was ever given was when I was very young and I was working for a Canadian journalist who got a lot of press. And he said to me, because I was concerned that some of the press was negative, and he said, Barbara, don't ever worry about negative press. It's not what they say, it's the number of inches they give you. I cannot think of a worse piece of advice because the number of inches they give you ignited a firestorm in our case and I believe was directly responsible for the events that led to our difficulties. With that, thank you very much for joining us today, Barbara. Thank you very much, Katie. Delight to be here. And thank you for listening. And while we have you here, just to say this is the last Women of Balls podcast episode of 2020. We'll be back in the new year with new guests. If you do have any suggestions uh, of people you would like to get on the podcast or like to listen to, do send us an email at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And in the meantime, just in case you are looking for something to listen to, whether it's on a socially distanced journey or uh, a slightly reduced Christmas celebrations, we do have our archive. If you just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash balls, and there you'll find various episodes of everyone from the Shadow Chancellor, Annalise Dodds, to Boris Johnson's sister Rachel Johnson, the evening standard editor Emily Sheffield, um, the interviewer Lynn Barber and the UK's ambassador to the US Dame Karen Pierce, and many more. Mm-hmm.